This podcast is a project of the Massachusetts Cultural Council, a state agency committed to building creative communities and inspiring creative minds. And so we're very much moving in the mainstream as an integrative medicine, meaning one of a number of therapies that support traditional medicine. Uh, and so you will find us there and hopefully you will partake of us. Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Massachusetts Cultural Council. Welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. And our guest today is Dr. Peggy Cotting, who is Professor of Music Therapy at the Berklee College of Music. And welcome to the program. Thank you for the invitation. What got you interested in music therapy? Uh, a long time ago, um, as really as a child, I, I think all of, all of us will tell you that there was probably some moment or something that happened in our lives or to us or someone that we know. And uh, in my case, um, as a child, uh, I was separated from my parents very early. And uh, someone gave me a piano. And so that really became my voice. And I used that, and I uh, traveled, and I performed, and um, learned that that instrument really was, uh, over time, a part of myself. And it, it became really something that I thought, well, if I can do this and this works for me, then it might be something that will work for other people. And work meaning um, a way for a person like me or unlike me but with similar needs would find a relationship with the world. It's amazing the power of music. You discovered it from a personal story in your own life. But we have seen examples of music therapy where people with profound um, functional um, disabilities can be reached and express themselves through music and it almost, it, it seems amazing. How does that work? How does that happen? That, that is such a great question. And uh, I, as you mentioned that to me, I'm reminded of one of my early experiences where uh, in Tennessee, I, I accepted a position at the new music therapist, and new is critical in this answer, uh, at the Tennessee School for the Blind, and they had no program. And so they had arts programs, they had music performance programs, but as the laws were changing and those kids were going to, the kids who were capable were going to public school, they had all of our kids who really had special needs as we called it back then. Um, and I walked into a room as part of uh, the working with children who really, really needed something. And the room I walked into had 10 children who were deaf and blind. And my training had nothing to do with that. And so those children taught me, they taught me that through rhythm, on a wooden floor um, and through touch that uh, we could communicate with the very basic elements of music and communication um, and through that begin to have a conversation. And from that moment, uh, it's been a building process because human needs are human needs. And there is something very powerful about about music that uh, reaches us at a base level, but we can start at a very basic level to achieve that. When we think about music and um, someone, for example, who is blind or deaf, 
uh, like the story that you just told, um, is their brain different? Is Do they experience music differently than people who are sighted or who hear? Well, that's also a great question, and we haven't had any answers for that. We've So we've made up our own over time. So when I worked with children uh, very actively full-time at the Tennessee School for the Blind, uh, back then, one of the things I did, if I may tell you a little quick story, was I would I was on an assessment team. I would go into the hollers. I don't know if you know what that is, but they're little pockets of communities, consisting of communities of people with their children who many times have not been out of those little spaces and in, into a broader world. And we would go in and we would uh, do assessments on these children to see if we could bring them to our residential school to learn. Life-changing, because they could obviously never really go back. And what their parents told us, so humbling, was were two things. One, that the reason they had these children was that they had done something wrong. They had somehow offended God. But the other thing they told us, and many people outside of these hollers also told us, was that their children were gifted and that in many cases that God had given them music as a, a sixth sense because God had taken their sight. And people had for many years, many, many years, still up to this day, there are people who believe that to be true. But your question is an important question because now, because we have the technology, which affects our research and our understanding of things, we know that things are different. We know uh, that we have, for example, the concept and understand the concept much better of neuroplasticity, that our brains allow us to compensate for um, the needs that our brains have for, for example, uh, everyone knows the story of Gabby Giffords. So she um, lost her ability to speak, not her ability to understand. She had aphasia, but she needed to learn how to talk again. And so through music therapy, she was able to access and, and retrain, if you will, neurons through melodic intonation therapy to begin to talk, sing, and then to lose singing because we can't do that forever, and then to begin, be able to talk. So she was training her brain to deal with the disability or other neurons to take over what she could no longer do. And, and isn't singing some of the very earliest things we do as infants? It is, and we do that major third minor third singing, we've all done that as, as children when we're taunting our friends as we're <laughs> little kids, and that's, that's a very natural thing to do. With individuals who are blind, children are blind, especially congenitally blind, blind from birth, and then if we also add autism to that, we're finding that there is something called neurodiversity. There's something going on in the brain that is different, and we're just beginning to do this research that neuroplasticity or the sort of the expansion of the neurons of the brain um, not only allow for compensation when something is not quite right in our brain to t one part of the brain to take over another part that there's some combination especially of congenital blindness and autism that is producing um, exceptional positive exceptional ability of these children that where, for example, absolute pitch, or some people say perfect pitch, is, occurs in the general population about one in 10,000 you know, individuals. Um, something, 48% of these children have absolute pitch. Now, does that make them 
exceptional musicians. It is an indicator. It is an indicator. Uh, I'm a professor at Berkeley, which you mentioned, and uh, we we pride ourselves in having great musicianship. Not everybody there has absolute pitch. Many people don't. Excellent musicians. But we see this in these children. We see that they are um, exceptionally interested in external sounds, unlike much more so than uh, typical children, typical sighted children. And that in some way that seems to be contributing, as the researchers beginning to tell us, to their musicianship. That it seems to be that sound is their voice. So for some of these children who cannot speak, they speak in music and they correct their music therapists. And in, in terms of the key that the music is in, no, that's not, that's not the key. That's not the right key. Fix that or I'm going to get grumpy at you and I'm going to let you know in some way. So that music has, has become uh, a voice for many of these children. And we all know about savants and there are savants out there, but I'm not talking only about those children who are savants. Clearly they're there. But we're beginning to speak of these children as having some additional in to music ability. And do we know exactly what that is? We don't. But it seems to be related to now, not, and I say this respectfully, God giving children an extra talent because something is missing, but something that is there based on neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to um, bring about synapses, neuro neurons attaching to neurons in such a way that because there is not sight, because there is a way that, that children who have autism uh, communicate is also attaching itself to musical ability. And I find it incredibly fascinating, and I want to know more. In your research, have you ever discovered a people or a culture without music? The anthropologists tell us no. That, uh, and National Geographic and all those people who go in and, and really look for new cultures, new communities, they tell us no. That, that music is a part of all cultures. Uh, and when we look at the Anasazi, the, the, the old cultures uh, that were existed in the Southwest here and also that existed even in Japan, same basic culture. And they, they lived in these small kivas. They lived in these small, basically round houses that were tiny and held large families. And so there wasn't much room. So what do people decide to have in that small space? They had art, and they had a space for a drum. They had music in these very small spaces and very large families, very important. When I would go into the hollers, as I mentioned, these small uh, communities that were very isolated in Tennessee, and they're still there, um, these families, small cultures, were still playing the music on instruments that they make, that they make, still make, um, that they learned how to make and passed down for generations. And the music that they're still playing is Elizabethan music that came over from England. And that's what they passed down to their children. So um, there is music, and the music is, um, it is the culture. It speaks for the culture. And we all, but we all have that. So you know, we know we're home when the music sounds right to us, whatever right is. We know we're home.
Is this a, a growth area? Are you seeing more and more young people, maybe um, no longer seeing first chair in a major symphony orchestra <laughs> as being um, a goal that is as attainable, looking at other ways to use their uh, musical training and their musical ability. Is, is music therapy uh, growing as a field? Absolutely. There are many opportunities for our students to work because uh, we at Berkeley feel like they don't leave us until they're ready. Uh, they complete their training with us and then they do a six-month internship uh, and then uh, there are jobs in many places available or uh, many of our students start their own practice. They're uh, able to do that in this country or they go home because many of our students are from other countries and so they may go back to another country and start a program or be a part of a, a program there. Uh, but also in addition to their work as music therapists, um, our students are good musicians. Not all of them want to be first chair in the Boston Symphony. Um, there's only one of those. Um, but they are excellent musicians. So most of them play, most of them perform, and they also do clinical practice. And they're, So they're very well-rounded because our program is very much a music-centered program. You talked about your work uh, in medical settings. Um, is music therapy universally embraced by the medical fields, by hospitals, um, is it recognized as an effective um, component of a person's um, medical practice? Great question. Uh, well, first of all, we, we can say that in the United States versus other countries that we are becoming pretty much, um, when we're moving toward universal acceptance, we, we are a part of something called integrative medicine. Um, we learned way back in the 80s from a study that was uh, circulated very rapidly that 80% of Americans at that time, in the early 80s, were using some kind of, at that time we called it alternative medicine. That you were going out to do acupuncture, you were going out to do something. And a lot of people weren't talking to their physicians about that. And so people started going, hmm, physicians started going, well, what are they doing? What, if they're doing, what are they doing that's non-traditional? And so people started looking at that. Uh, and then they started looking at music. And now, um, Gottfried Schlag at Mass General, others uh, are definitely embracing the work that we do. The neurologists are right behind us. They're, they're talking about it very clearly uh, and incorporating what we do into their own research. Oliver Sacks, before his death, we just lost him, as you know, very much a proponent of what we do, and even his own experience spoke to that in his own life. And so we're very much moving in the mainstream as an integrative medicine, meaning one of a number of therapies that support traditional medicine. Uh, and so you will find us there, and hopefully you will partake of us. Dr. Peggy Codding, another creative mind out loud. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.